And uh, welcome to class, and as uh, we get started, let's go ahead and start with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you to, for the opportunity to get together and share your love, your truth. We ask that your spirit will join us, lead our minds to come to know you more fully, transform our hearts to, to be filled with your character and love, to live like you live, and may we be a witness for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, The Sanctuary, and the title this week is Christ Our High Priest. And actually, before we get into this week's lesson, I need to follow up from a question that came in from one of our on- online viewers last week. And the online viewer last week um, emailed a, uh, uh, texted in a quotation from Signs of the Times, December 23, 1886, and asked, how do I understand this quotation? And the quotation was, the altar and the promise stand side by side, and one cast clear beams of light on the other, showing that the justice of an offended God could be appeased only by the death of his beloved son. And they asked me, how do I, how do I understand that? And I said, well, um, I would want to see the context of the article because I don't know what altar it's talking about and so forth and so on. And I'm glad I took the time not to answer last week because when I went back and looked at the article, the article was actually about Cain and Abel. And the, and the um, altar was the altar of Cain and Abel, the, the two altars that they offered their uh, offerings upon. And the author in the article contrasts the attitudes of Cain and Abel. And I'm going to read you one paragraph in the beginning, actually the opening paragraph of the article. It says, these two brothers, Cain and Abel, present the whole, represent the whole human family. They were both tested on the point of obedience, and all, and all will be tested as they were. Abel bore the proving of God. He revealed the gold of a righteous character, the principles of true godliness. But Cain's religion is not a good foundation. It rested on human merit. He brought to God something in which he had personal interest, the fruits of the ground which he had cultivated by his toil, and he presented his offering as a favor done to God, through which he might uh, be expected to secure divine approval. So note the context. As the article starts out, it's over character. One, love and trust in God versus pride and selfishness. On the other hand, the article describes how Abel understood the principles of God's government and how uh, God always is the giver, not the receiver. That's the actual words in the article. But Cain sought to put God in the role of receiving gifts and being come indebted or earning favor from the gifts offered him. Abel worked with God to act out a lesson. An object lesson was acted out. Cain sought to appease God with payments. This is the big distinction made in the two. So with this context, what does it mean? Well, it depends on which, the quote, that that first quote I read out of the article, what law lens do you look at that quote through? Do you look at the law through the law lens of imperial Rome, a dictator establishing rules uh, enforced by the, the arm of government, or do you look at it as creator-designer, the law upon which life is constructed to operate? Which law lens do you hear it through? So if we look through the, the law lens of the designer, we see that the promise given to Adam, and what was the problem? That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but he would bruise his heel, stand side by side beside the altar, and the altar visually acts out in an enactment, in a, in a little theater, what the promise said. So you, they stand side by side, enlightening each other. This is what the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise his heel, and the altar then acts out that process, so they enlighten each other. 
Then what about the justice then being appeased? What does that mean? So the justice being appeased. Again, which law lends? If the imposed law, this rule system, then one believes it's, this is a legal payment to an offended God. But the article itself disallows this interpretation as it makes clear throughout that the gifts are not given to God, which Cain tried to do, but are from God for man's need. From God to man for man's need. Here's another example from the article. Man, in the pride of his heart, would like to believe that he can confer some favor upon God, that our Heavenly Father may be the receiver and not always the giver. But God will not be bribed. You see? When you put it in its context, God is not bribed. The barrier set up between God and man is that of sin in man. Thus, what is required is provided by God to fix what's wrong in man. So it is offensive. This, this idea, okay, appeasing the justice of an offended God. It's offensive to God as to any being with love in their heart to see pain, to see suffering, to see death, which occurs when God's design for life is broken. Thus God hates sin because it breaks the protocols upon which life is constructed, inflicts pain, suffering, death, and it is an offense to the pure loving heart of God. Therefore, if we look through the lens of designer law, the law upon which life is built, we see that the sacrifice of Christ was the only means to please God's purpose in saving man. Do you think I'm being dishonest with this quote when I put it in these words? Well, here's a dictionary definition of appease. To make someone pleased or less angry by saying something, saying or doing something desired. What would please God after Adam deviated from God's design and plunged humanity into sin? They're in a terminal course towards eternal death. What do you think would please God? Would it not please God to see mankind delivered and saved? Yes. Yes. This is what appeases him. He's happy that Christ took upon himself our sin, became sin, though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians. This pleases him. Or do you think it would please him? We're plummeting in a terminal condition toward eternal death, and he would be pleased to have another death and his blood offered to him. That pleases him. Oh, now I'm not as mad because you died. Oh, I'm not as mad. It makes no sense. But it does make sense when we see that Christ came to deliver mankind from the terminal condition of sin. All righty. Sabbath lesson. First paragraph, it says, After his resurrection and ascension to the heavenly sanctuary, Christ entered into a new phase of the plan of redemption. With the indispensable requirements of his sacrifice fulfilled, he was inaugurated as priest and began his priestly ministry in the order of, in order to mediate his perfect sacrifice on behalf of those covered by faith, by his blood. The priestly ministry consists of two phases, both foreshadowed in the earthly sanctuary, the daily ministry, and the yearly ministry during the Day of Atonement. What does it mean? What do you think this means? First question, why after the resurrection? After the old symbolic system was done away with? Why after Christ fulfilled what the Old Testament was pointed toward, do we still insist on using symbols to describe what's happening? Why don't we just state it plainly? 
What is it, for instance, what does it mean? It says right here in, this, in the thing, it says, after he ascended, we are covered by faith by his blood. That's what it says. We're covered by faith by his blood. Does that mean we're washed in plasma? Red corpuscles. One of the rituals of ancient Rome, actually, when Christ was on earth, is that the gladiators would sacrifice to the pagan gods, and before they went in, they would sacrifice bulls. And the bulls would be, would be their, their arteries and their throat would be cut, and the gladiators would walk underneath, and the blood of the sacrificial animal would wash over them. They would literally be washed in the blood, and they would be drenched in the blood of the sacrificial animal. And this would, would cleanse them and it would pr- supposed to give them you know, ritualistic and religious and, and supernatural protection and these types of things. Washed in the blood. Is that what we're talking about when we use this metaphor? We're washed in the blood. Well, again, what does it mean? It depends on the law lens that you look through. Do you look through imperial Roman law, a dictator setting up rules that he must enforce, or do you look at it through the lens of the creator, the designer, the builder who constructed and built life? Well, let's look at those. Blood under the imposed law, the penal system law, it becomes a legal payment. Blood under the natural law is symbolic of a healing remedy. Under the legal system, it pays for our bad deeds, our sins. Under the healing model, it actually transforms and heals. Remember Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, it comes inside us. It actually heals and transforms. It heals heals the heart condition. Uh, Under the... Uh, penal model, it covers our defects of character. We're covered. The defects are covered. Under the healing model, it actually transforms and regenerates our character so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Under the penal model, it removes the record of sin from the books in heaven. Under the healing model, it removes sinfulness from the heart and character of the sinner. Under the penal model, the blood is symbolic of death. Under the healing model, the blood is symbolic of the life. The life is in the blood, it says in Leviticus. We partake the life of Christ. It's written in our hearts. The founders of our church saw it the way I do. Sadly, most of Christianity, including our current, much of our current church, church leadership, sees it through the Roman imperial law construct. But here are some quotes from over 100 years ago to show you how our church started out. First is, a letter in 406, 1906. You can find it in 6th Bible Commentary, 1074. The atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way to have our sins pardoned. It is a divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is the heaven-ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may be not only upon us, but in our hearts and characters. Do you hear that? It's not a legal deal where you get rules changed or books changed. It actually is in us. It changes us. Here's this one. is Great Controversy 645. In the beginning, man was created in the likeness of God, not only in character but in form and feature. Sin defaced and almost obliterated the divine image. But Christ came to restore that which had been lost. Here's uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 311. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law. Why does he see it? 
Because we have a legal thing going on in heaven and books have been changed? No, because our thoughts have been brought in harmony with his. Our will is merged with his. Our mind becomes one with his. We live his life. As Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Here's one. 5 Testimony 7.17. The law of God should be loved and honored by his true people now more than ever before. There is the most imperative There is the most imperative necessity of urging the injunction of Christ upon the minds and hearts of all believers, men and women, youth and children. Search the scriptures, study the Bibles that you've never studied before. Unless you arise to a higher holy and holier state in your religious life, you will not be ready for the appearing of the Lord. Now get this next sentence. Much time should be spent in prayer that our garments of character may be washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. What's being washed? That our record books may be stamped pardon. No, that our garments of character may be transformed. Or Christ's Object Lessons, page 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough, gentle, the selfish, generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are we, are, we ready, are we ready to move away from symbol talk to get to literal, actual, real happenings in the universe? Humankind has been infected. Satan is the father of lies. Our minds have been infected with lies about God. Trust was broken. Selfishness and fear infected the hearts. We no longer operate as God designed. Christ, God, through Christ, is wanting to restore his creation back into perfect harmony with himself. This is an actual recreation, regeneration, transformation, rebuilding, and it has to happen inside us. Yes? I think the problem arises when people think about the problem with sin is our behavior. The problem with sin is a relational one. If I don't have the relationship with God, the fruits will show up and otherwise... So I think if we believe that Jesus, God was in Christ reconciling us to himself, it's a relational issue. Now I see God's love and I go back to him and I'm transformed. Absolutely. And it's a, it is a relationship. It only happens in a trust-love relationship with our creator. Isn't that true? And do, do, do penal constructs in which we conceive of God as angry and mad who will use his power to torture and kill devi- deviations from his design unless he has his son pleading his blood to, his, to him to hold back his anger? Do those ideas instill love and trust in your heart to God? No, no. no they don't. They're, devi- they're, not, they're, they're not true. And, and they're part of the infection that's happened to Christianity. We're going to expose that very clearly this afternoon in our seminar. Yes. Well, and it may be that we like those those dark speed spiritual words, much like medicine likes using Latin, so that you have a grip on the meaning. You know, the clergy sort of keeps it to themselves and they dole it out as they wish to. And it's, it kind of keeps them in an exclusive group. And you're not part of that, but you have to come to them. Years and years ago, when I was in school, I had the opportunity to work with a variety of different doctors that you went through your so forth. And, and I noticed there were two types of doctors. There were the doctors who had book knowledge, but didn't really understand the, 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 the true application in the real world of how it worked. And when they would tell people and the patients the problem, they would start recounting the book knowledge with all these big, flutin words and, and so forth. And the patients, after the doctor would leave, they would look at the med students or the nurses and go, 
what'd he say? <laughs> and we would then have to explain it. Okay? And then there were other doctors, though, who understood the book knowledge, but they also understood the real world, how it works, and they would just talk in simple terms about how it worked, and the patients understood. And I remember a long time ago, Graham Maxwell said about Jesus that Jesus was the greatest teacher ever because he would take complex things and make them simple for the children to understand. And that's what we try to do in here to, 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 as best we can, take things that are complex and make them simple to understand. So I agree with you. I think the, theologically it's true as well. Sometimes when, when you have ideas that you yourself don't really understand, you've just been taught a system, but it, you've never really connected how it works in the real world, then you just spout the, 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 the mantra in the theological jargon that you've learned. Yeah. All right, so... Do you think it's okay? Do you think it's time we move into reality and pass symbols? I do too. Second paragraph. It says, this week, this week we will study the work of Jesus during his daily ministry and see some of the practical ramifications that his work has for us. We can indeed draw great comfort from knowing that Jesus is now standing in the presence of God, ministering the merits of his sacrifice in our behalf. Sanctuary Messers offers hope and encouragement even the weakest of his followers. What does it mean, Jesus, standing in the presence of God, ministering the merits of his sacrifice in our behalf? Again, what do you think the merits of his sacrifice mean? What does it mean? It depends, again, on which lens you look through. We're going through imperial, Roman, legal, law lenses that must be punished if you deviate. Then merits equal Credits, points, or payments. He's ministering his payment, his merits, his credits. If you under the healing model, merits actually mean traits of character. The perfection of character that he has achieved. If you under the penal model, it, it, it's presented that merits are presented to God to earn favor, to earn pardon. The the under the healing model, the merits are presented to us to earn trust. In concert with God himself. Exactly. Exactly. It's offered on the penal model to earn pardon. It's offered as a remedy to cure us on the healing model. It's, in the penal model, it's applied, the merits are applied to the record books in heaven. In the healing model, it's actually the merits are reproduced via the work of the Spirit in the heart where we actually bit peaceable fruits of righteousness, the character of Christ is, is actually regenerated within the believer. Why do we end up with such confused thinking? Because of the filters and the lenses that people look through. The Bible is written in many riddles, dreams, metaphors, parables. It says uh, in, uh, I believe, Numbers or Deuteronomy, it says dark speech. Not bad speech, just speech that needs to be interpreted and understood. And Therefore, though, because it's in all these different symbols and metaphors, it's open to wide interpretation. And people often bring, or people bring the lenses, their biases, their preconceived ideas, their pre-Bible belief systems to the Bible and read those symbolic words through the lenses that they currently hold and come to these imperial dictatorial conclusions. And that's why we have introduced the integrative evidence-based approach that requires the scripture to harmonize, the scripture, one thread, harmonize with Science, Romans 1, God's divine nature seen in what he has made. Remember that excuse? 
and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. Check me out. All three have to harmonize on points for us to have confidence. Here's a quotation from one of the founders of our church along these lines, this, this same idea from our, our text, our, our lesson. Consider how this is most frequently understood and how if you were tomorrow talking to somebody in their home, they pulled this quote out on you, how would you explain this quote? This is out of Lift Him Up, page 320. The world's redeemer possessed the power to draw men to himself to quiet their fears, to dispel their gloom, to inspire them with hope, courage, and to enable them to believe in the willingness of God to receive them through the merits of the divine substitute. As subjects of the love of God, we ever should be grateful that we have a mediator, an advocate, an intercessor in the heavenly courts who pleads in our behalf before the Father. I hope I'm not getting off the subject a bit, but there has been a tendency in this church to infallibilize the writings of this founder. Yes. And I really like the way you've been handling the recent controversy about the quote in recent lessons. But we need to remember there is no such thing as a spiritual gift of infallibility. In fact, the word infallible doesn't appear in the concordance of some of our more recent Bible translations. So no human being, no matter how blessed by God or human institution, has infallibility. We need to remember that, and especially our church needs to remember that. I think that's well said. And last week we talked in here, and the person who wrote this wrote that God and heaven alone are infallible. That all human instrumentalities are subject to, to making mistakes. We gave examples, like Peter the Apostle, who w- wouldn't associate with others. And imagine if we had Peter the Apostle come visit our church and he told us we really shouldn't associate with those uncircumcised fellows over there. And how many of us would have had, before Paul confronted him, how many of the church membership would have had the courage to stand up and said, Peter, you're wrong. No, you're an apostle. No, you got the gift and all this kind of stuff from the Spirit. But you're wrong. You know, we're cowed, aren't we? But shouldn't somebody who knew God, his methods, his character, that he wanted the house of God to be a, wor- a, space, a place of worship for all peoples, shouldn't somebody have said, Peter, I think you're wrong on this one. I think you're wrong. So I, I, I like where you're going. And, and the pr- point we take is Romans 14, 5, that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. And the Bible, and the Bible alone, ultimately is our standard of faith. And the founders of our church, we have to recognize also that they came from different sects of religion so the, the lens that they were looking through at that time, even though that they were inspired, um, I think that the filters that were on the lens weren't quite clear enough yet in some of the language that they might have used when, when, when they were interpreting. And, and let's talk about this inspiration idea for a minute. What does the Bible say about spiritual things? They're, they're what? <laughs> Spiritually discerned. D- does that mean, do, do we understand it correctly to say, that to the degree we, any of us in this room, correctly understand Scripture and come to scriptural truth, that the Holy Spirit led us to that truth. Is that, is that what that means? That of our own carnal minds and carnal natures, we can't really understand the truth of God. Is that, is, would you agree with that? So get your mind around this idea then. To the degree any person comes to spiritual truth, communicates spiritual truth, articulates spiritual truth, that is clearly in harmony with God's character, that is Spirit-inspired. Is it not? 
Yes. They may not be a prophet in the classic sense, but the, the Spirit gives the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching. And, and, and that those gifts are given to enlighten the minds of the preachers and teachers and other people, and those truths that they articulate are still Spirit-inspired. So if you read a book from somebody and you find Bible truth there, it's the Holy Spirit leading in that process in your mind as well as in the mind of the person who wrote it. Yes, you had a comment. Uh, two thoughts. Like you were saying back here, um, I had written in my notes that light or knowledge is progressive, and then love confronts to get closer. I didn't hear that comment. Love confronts. Yes, yes. Love confronts uh, problems and things that are injuring and damaging, sure. So let's go back to this quote. I really want you guys to have an insight on how to answer a quote, because on the surface it could sound pretty difficult. But actually listen carefully to what's being said. He wants them to believe the willingness of God to receive them through the merits of the divine substitute. As subjects to the love of God, we should we ever should be grateful that we have a mediator, an advocate, an intercessor in the heavenly courts who pleads in our behalf before the Father. Before the Father. So here's another quote, same author, second manuscript released, page 37. While Jesus, our intercessor, pleads for us in heaven, the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. All heaven is interested in the salvation of the soul. Then what reason have we to doubt that the Lord will not and does not help us? What is it saying? So think this through with me. Jesus pleads, but all heaven is interested in our salvation. What does that mean? It means that those in heaven do not need persuasion to be interested in our salvation. All heaven's interested in our salvation. So if Christ is pleading, and it's not to persuade beings in heaven, including the Father, because they're already interested in our salvation and on our side, then who is he pleading with? Exactly correct. Who? He's pleading with us and the Holy Spirit. Our intercessor pleads for us in heaven. The Holy Spirit works. While Jesus, our intercessor, pleads for us in heaven, the Holy Spirit works in us. What did Jesus say? When I go, it's good for you that I go. When I go, the Spirit will come. He won't speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Who do you think the Spirit is listening to to speak to us? Christ. Christ. So Christ is before the Father. In other words, before the Father's venue, carrying out the Father's purposes, pleading. Who are the ones who need to be pled with? We are the ones who doubt God's goodness. We are the ones burdened with guilt and shame and lies and think we are too far gone, too sinful, too wicked, too unholy for God to still love. We are the ones who doubt what, uh, that Christ's love, Christ's righteousness could still be for us. We are the ones who are confused, groping in the darkness of this world, seeking for the light of Christ from heaven that pleads through the Holy Spirit to you and me, I love you. Don't give up. Listen to my voice. Follow me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trust me. Let me into your heart. Choose me and I will heal you. The Spirit, Christ pleads to you and to me to let him in. But we have this imperial Roman law construct and instead we pervert the character of the Lord and we present Jesus up there pleading to an angry God who isn't really interested in saving us except he can't deny the, the bloody requests of his son. It's gross. Yes. And if we believe that Christ came to earth in order to dispel the lies to, as part of his mission, then his pleading could also be part of that to say, 
Look. Exactly. We're, we're together on this. We all of heaven wants your healing. And yes, a couple more comments, and, we'll, and we're going to jump on that point next on Monday's lesson. Yeah. Christ is standing at our heart's door and knocking, not God's. Exactly what the scripture says, isn't it? Well said, yeah. So jump to Monday's lesson. It asks us to look at Romans 8, 31 through 34. And I'm going to read that for you. Romans 8, you all know this one probably very well. What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised in life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the first paragraph, first paragraph says, on Monday, it says, the background of verses 31 through 34 is a courtroom scene in which we should visualize ourselves on trial. Questions are asked, who is against us? Who will bring any charge against us? Who condemns us? Such a situation could easily send shivers down our spines. After all, are we not all aware of our human imperfections and sinfulness? Do you see the lens that they come to the text with? They come with an imperial Roman, dictatorial, imposed law construct. And they read this text to be a courtroom scene. And I'm going to tell you it's not. You can't go to the text and find that there. It's all read into it. If it's any type of a court, it's a royal court. Yes. John 16, 25th verse, Christ says, I have used figures of speech to tell you these things, but the time will come when I will not use figures of speech, but will speak to you plainly about the Father. And when that day comes, you will ask him in my name. And I don't say that I will ask him on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Amen. Amen. So, do you hear that? I will not. And the other verse say, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father himself loves you. That's plain talk. Right before Jesus said, I'm going to tell you plainly, if you read the verses below, the disciple says, now you're telling us plainly without any more parables or, or figures of speech. The plain talk is Jesus is not going to pray his Father for us because the Father himself loves us. Let's see if we can tie that together now with Romans 8. We're right in Romans 8. We're talking about God is for us. Who can be against us? They want us to believe this is a courtroom scene where you have Jesus, our advocate, pleading to the Father on our behalf, Roman law model. Next paragraph, it says, however, we do, we do not need to fear the promise that nothing and no one can separate us from God's love centers on several important points. God is for us. God delivered his son for us. God freely gives us all things. And God justifies us. Jesus is on our side. You notice how it says Jesus is on our side? It didn't say God is on our side. Jesus is on our side. Jesus is the answer to any fear of condemnation, for he died, was raised, and is now continuously interceding for us in the heavenly sanctuary at the right hand of God. They want you to have this idea in your mind that yes, God is for us, and all this, but and God said, did all this stuff so that Jesus would pay a penalty to the Father, so the Father would then legally not have to punish us. That's not what the actual text, though, says. Do you notice they've, they left something critical out of the text of 31 through 34? And that is the word also. You notice in the text it actually says, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. They, they, they left that word out. What does the word also mean? Together with, or in addition to. Well, in addition to who? 
He's also interceding for us. In addition to somewhere else, somebody else is interceding. Christ is also interceding. He's being added to the intercessory roles here. So where do we find the others? Go to verse 28 to start with. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Verse 20, God is, is for us. Who can be against us? God is interceding in our behalf. Verse 26, look at verse 26 in this of chapter 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not... We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words we cannot express. And so what we find happening here is that we find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three are interceding for us. One member is not interceding with another member of the Godhead. That would distort the unity. If you see me, you've seen the Father. So let me draw this together and I'll take a question. Could it be like this? The Father intercedes by providing all the resources in heaven for our defense and our restoration. Thus he intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness. He sends his angels to hold the four winds of strife. He has his, um, uh, and to create protective hedges to hold back evil forces and to watch over his people. Remember Jesus said that the angels of the little children are always seeing the face of the Father. He's got those angels doing his work to protect us. And of course he sent the most precious resource that heaven had to give for God so loved the world. He gave his only son. God is interceding, providing everything necessary. The Holy Spirit intercedes in our hearts and minds, to enlighten with truth, to convict of wrong, to draw with love, to woo to a better way, to make us dissatisfied with sin, to create a longing for our heavenly home, and to apply what Christ has achieved in the heart of the believer. And Jesus intercedes with the course of sinfulness itself by becoming sin, though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. In other words, humanity in Adam after Adam's sin, was on a terminal course. Humanity was, was, was decaying and dying in sin, a trajectory that was leading to an eternal death. Christ came, partook of humanity, and altered the outcome. Because of Jesus Christ and what he achieved for us, humanity has a different outcome possible now. He inter, inter, interceded in what sin was doing to the human species. And we find all three working together in harmony to achieve God's goal of delivering humanity from eternal death in sin. Okay, I saw a hand somewhere. Yes? I just I have questions, I guess. Sure. I'm just wondering, is it possible that this interceding is maybe the angels are not sure if we're safe to save? And he's, he's saying, I overcome self-centeredness. I'm, I'm other-centered. I, and I can help Paul, you know. And Angel Joe or Bill or whatever your names are, you know, he, he can be changed to be other-centered instead of self-centered. I'm proof of that. <laughs> is it possible or is it, or do you think that the angels are convinced and there's no doubts in their mind? I, I think the angels had many questions about God. His trustworthiness, his methods, his principles, how his government operate. Many questions along those lines that were being answered through the creation of Adam and Eve in the first place, and this planet, which is a microcosm, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. And, and this little planet with Adam and Eve to 
originally govern in a sinless world and have children in a sinless world were to govern on God's principles of love and it would have, they would have enacted and carried out the ability to do, have dominion and procreate. They were the representative of the Godhead on the planet. Satan co-opted this, this lesson book, infected it with his principles, distorted the lesson. Christ came to, to give the, the true lesson. So I think the angels had many questions along those lines through the history of time, for sure. About us, though, safe to save. I've heard this from many people I respect through the years. I, I think I, I don't think that's really a necessary truth. Um, and here's why. Sin itself is deviant from God's design. And life cannot exist out of harmony with God's design except by his artificial intercessions. Or rest. Uh, so example, you tie a plastic bag over your head, you deviate from the design. God has designed us to breathe, give away carbon dioxide, the plants give us oxygen. You can deviate from that. You can be selfish and hoard all your carbon dioxide to yourself and not give any away. You don't have to have a courtroom investigation to see who's tying a plastic bag over their head. It becomes self-evident. Likewise, in the end, if you put all the scriptures together about um, our God is a consuming fire, to sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire, uh, Christ would have come with the unveiled glory that he had with his Father in heaven. He would have destroyed those he came to. No one can see my face and live. And on and on and on it goes. Those who have not actually been renewed and regenerated in heart cannot survive when God unveils himself. It will be self-evident. They will run. They will beg. Hide us from him who sits on the throne. Let the mountains fall on us. They don't want to be there. There's no investigation necessary. It becomes self-evident by the condition that they are in. So I, I don't think that will be a problem. And I could go on with more and more evidence. You take this idea I'm giving you and then start looking at the evidences in the inspired writings that we have. You will see that this is, there's mounds of evidence for the condition of the, of the person themselves determines what, what, what the outcome is for them. They've either been reconciled to Christ, been reborn, renewed, recreated, had the law written on the heart and mind, had the heart circumcised by the spirit, had the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, any way you want to do the metaphor, they are like Christ in heart. They love God and others more than self. Or they still have self, and they still live in lies and self-deception and self-centeredness. And, and to them, pure love and pure truth is torment. And the scripture teaches this. If someone does you wrong, what, do you, what does it say to do? If someone does you wrong, what does it say to do? Do, 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 do kindness to them in some way, and you will heap burning coals on their head. It hurts them. How does it hurt them? Guilty conscience. See, the, those who live in darkness don't want to come in the light unless their evil deeds are exposed. So I don't think the angels have primary concerns about whether we're safe or not. I think they had primary concerns about whether God was safe or not. That was, I think, that's my view anyway. All right, let's keep going. Another hand somewhere? Yes. <clears throat> we are taught that during the time of investigative judgment, heavenly records are being examined to determine whether individual human beings are safe to bring into heaven. I wonder, in consideration of all that we've learned here, whether we need to adopt a new paradigm about this. Because if God is for us and no one is against us and the angels in heaven are unfallen beings, doesn't that mean they are like God in character? And we can be sure God doesn't want any of us to be excluded from heaven. First Timothy, God wants all men to come to salvation. Yeah. yeah. So the angels 
should be of the same mindset of God. They are. Yes. They don't want, like God, they don't want anyone else to be excluded from heaven. So the investigation really has to be about God. You are, you've got it exactly right. That's why the first angel's message, uh, fear God, fear God, and not, not, be tra- not be terrified, oh, I'm so scared, but be in awe, amazed, overwhelmed with his beauty, fear and be in awe, you know, this, this amazement with him, and give glory to him. Give him glory. Reveal his character in your being. Give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth. You know, the hour of his judgment can mean imperial law. If you go through the Roman lens, he's got a bunch of rules he's put on us with no actual inherent consequence, so now he's got to have a judgment and have a courtroom and decide who gets what and then punish everybody. This is the lie. He's the designer, the builder, the creator who created all life, and sin is deviant from his design, and the root to that is lies about him that we believed. And he's coming back, and he wants us in harmony with him. So it's time now, fear God, give glory to him, reveal his true character, glorify him in your life, because the hour in which he will be judged has come. We are to worship the designer, he who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all the, and stop worshiping the dictator. Now, Paul, if you want to buy another Bible text, what I'm saying, Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 4 said, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God was the one accused, lied about. He didn't do anything wrong. But just like if you had someone lie to you about your spouse, that your spouse was having an affair, you believe the lie, but they didn't. Your spouse is innocent, done nothing wrong. Somebody told you a lie, you believe the lie. You don't trust your spouse anymore. Your spouse wants you back. The innocent person, in order to get you back, if you believe the lie, has to prove their innocence. That's it. Simple as that. God has been in the business of trying to convince us that we believed lies about him to win us back to trust. And that's what's happening at the end of the time to win the world back to seeing God the way he really is. So in the uh, Monday's lesson, last two paragraphs, the truth becomes even clearer in First, uh, first John 2, 1 and 2. The Greek parakletos designates a legal assistant or advocate, someone who appears in the behalf of As an intercessor, Jesus is our advocate, and he defends us because otherwise we'd have no hope. Our advocate is righteous, which gives us the assurance that the Father will hear, notice, the assurance that the Father will hear Christ's intercessions. For Christ could do nothing that his righteous Father would reject. You know, in the Roman Catholic view, you can read stuff exactly like that, just take Christ's name out and put Mary's in. The son can't reject anything his righteous mother prays to him to do. It's exactly the same thing. Uh, Christ intercedes for those who have sinned, presenting himself, the one who has not sinned, as the righteous one who stands in their stead. This is all pagan. It's all pagan. It's not biblical. It's because of an infection. Come, come this afternoon, most of you coming this afternoon to our seminar, I will lay out the evidence for you from history and from Scripture, and from other uh, historical sources, where you will see where this came from. So, what did our church used to teach? Let me give you a little history where our church used to teach. This is from a book called The Desire of Ages, page 761. Where did this idea of, of, of sin having to be punished, we have all this legal stuff going, come from? This is Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. His justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan. Sin must be punished is a satanic doctrine. 
It's where it originated. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. When men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved, he declared, that the law could not be obeyed, man could not be forgiven, because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must be forever shut out of God's favor. God could not be judged, just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position than that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a legal payment of the blood of his... Of, of his you think, what do you think the hope for man was after man sinned? For him there was hope in the knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. It's a relationship issue. We believe that God is untrustworthy, that he's severe, he's abusive, he's self-centered. We believe lies, we don't trust him. But what wins us back to trust is the truth about God's character of love and that we see he's always been for us. The defect has been in us, not in God. Let me keep going. Next paragraph. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. The law reveals the attributes of God's character, and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. God could not change his law, but he sacrificed himself, sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now I'm going to pause. There's one more paragraph. I'm going to pause. Why could the law not be changed? It's it's based in love. Because the law are the design protocols upon which life is constructed to operate. To change the law would be to destroy all life. The law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a person who ties 50-pound weights on their legs and jumps in the ocean. To meet them in that deviant condition of being underwater without oxygen, you can't change the law of respiration to meet them there. Can't breathe water and live. Thus Christ was sacrificed. We needed to change. The law didn't need to change to meet us. We needed to be changed to be put back in harmony with the way God built things to operate. Thus Christ was sacrificed for man's redemption, to reconcile man back to God, to restore man to harmony with God. Actual transformation. And so notice the very next words in the very next paragraph of this quotation about what the law required. Satan alleged that the law requires punishment, that sin must be punished. Penal substitution theology supports Satan's allegation that sin must be punished. Notice how our church over 100 years ago, though, taught what the law required. Next paragraph, Star of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift 
to God to appease his anger and wrath. No, notice who the gift is offered to. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. It's to us the gift is offered. It's us. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Satan said he can't do that. No, you can't. You have to punish the sin. Sin has to be punished. We have to have a payment. God, you cannot forgive those sins without a legal payment. Penal substitution theology. What we teach as the primary view of God in our church comes right straight from the, the, the first liar of all. It's not. Thus they have forbearance of sins. The remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Notice the process. This is transformational, healing, regenerational, recreation, renewal, literal, actual. We get changed. Regeneration. It's healing. It's cleansing of you and me. I believe the Gospel of John, the upper room discourse, makes it very clear that Jesus and the Father are one and the same of character. Yep, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, absolutely. Why is penal substitu- belief in penal substitution so prevalent? It, it makes a mockery of this teaching. The, the, and here's, here's why. And, and this is what we're going to really expose today in our seminar this afternoon uh, through a variety of different evidentiary bases. But it's because when Constantine converted, the God's law and how it was understood, if you read New Testament scripture, Old Testament scripture, the law is always described as the law of love. The royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. All law hangs on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All minds and his neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's the biblical definition of law, and we've just defined that as the design protocol for life. But when Constantine converted, that idea got replaced. The Bible prophecy was, hey, there's going to be a little horn power. It's going to come along to seek to change God's law. How it got changed? God's law is not the design protocols for life. It's an imperial set of rules put in force by the divine dictator the universal dictator that has no inherent consequence but now requires the divine government to police breaches in the law and inflict punishments. Accepting this lie about God's law changes how they interpret everything else. And this is why in Great Controversy, I don't have the quote, but in Great Controversy, one of the founders of our church said, the, the end, the controversy in the end will be over what it started in in the beginning, the test over God's law. And, we, and I read in the beginning how it was alleged that God's law required sin to be punished. That's exactly what is being taught in the vast majority of Christian churches today. And the law is a reflection of his character, so... Exactly. So he's this, this arbitrary dictator. All right, let's, let's, uh, the word parakletos that we read earlier, by the way, and they said this is, has a legal meaning as an advocate who pleads our legal case. No, 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 no. When Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to send the comforter or the helper to you, the word is parakletos. It is one who walks alongside you to assist you, to guide you, to, to pick you up when you stumble and fall, to bandage the, the knee when you scrape it. The parakletos is our helper. And so Jesus is our, it's not our, our advocate to plead our case in that sense. He is our helper to help us in our time of need. And thus it says in Hebrews, surely it is Abraham's descendants he helps and not angels. He's helping us. He's our helper. That's what it really means. Can you, I, I just, it, it, 
it, it just saddens and twists my heart to see how they take this beautiful image of Jesus stooping down from heaven, leaving all behind to help us and turn it into this legal construct where he's a defense attorney pleading to his dad on our behalf to hold off his dad's anger from killing us. It's just completely gross when you do it that way. And his dad is like him. Yeah, exactly. Let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. We only have a few minutes left. The lesson points out correctly that Jesus is tempted in every way just like us, but without sin. It points to the experiences and the, and the temptations in the desert when Satan tempted him. And yes, Jesus did experience temptation in the desert. These were external temptations. And Satan approached him through the three avenues that the scripture says we're vulnerable to through our carnal nature. In First John, it tells us we're vulnerable to the lust of the flesh. So Jesus was tempted with appetite, lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, greed and pride. He was tempted with all the wealth of the cities and the pride of life, our own arrogance. He was tempted to prove himself and show how great he was. So the three primary avenues through which we were tempted, the devil did tempt him. And that's where the lesson ends. But it goes much farther than that, my friends. It goes much, much farther. Jesus was tempted much more severely. Crucifixion weekend in Gethsemane. When powerful human emotions, powerful human emotions were so great, he felt that he was going to die, and he pled repeatedly, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The most powerful temptations, uh, human, he felt that he felt his own human emotions. He felt the emotions of fear, loneliness, rejection, hurt, humiliation, shame. When he was rejected by his friends, cursed by his followers, spit upon by his people, whipped by strangers, stripped naked and hung out before the world, mocked, belittled, teased, and then tempted by others to save himself repeatedly, to be without sleep, dehydrated, weak, and feeling all alone, without even the comforting sense of his father's presence. Then the devil hits him, With all of that, the devil hits him with coercive pressure, threat, intimidation, rejection of friends, physical abuse, and if you don't act, I'm going to kill you. The the survival instinct to protect ourselves. We know that even in every legal justice system of the human planet, it is okay to defend yourself if somebody's trying to kill you. And they played that card to try to get Christ, who took upon himself our, our infirmities, our iniquities, and felt temptation as we feel it. Christ felt that temptation to protect himself. But he didn't. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. It was an awful time. Yet what did he do? He loved constantly, totally, insistently, completely, perfectly. His human brain, human brain. Get your mind around this. It wasn't his divinity that did this. It was his humanity that did this. Though tempted, he never surrendered, never gave up, never quit, never stopped loving, never, uh, but did surrender self in love for you and me. It's huge. Yeah, Russell. Do you recall the Ellen White quote where she said that he was actually tempted to continue his ministry and not leave it to the apostles? That that was one of Satan's temptations uh, Christ in the garden. Yeah, I, you know, I don't remember the exact quote, but I remember that idea. Yeah. Yeah. That was another, just another angle to, hey, they're not ready. Don't, don't, don't go through this now. Go ahead and use your power to save yourself so you can continue helping people. In Isaiah, even in the Old Testament, it talks about this. Isaiah 59, starting with verse 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. 
The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm works salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Which version? This is New International Version. Nice. So at the talking, I think about God saying, no one can help these people without essentially give you my right arm to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's, that's absolutely right. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, if we've seen a crucial... As, as we have seen, a crucial purpose of the earthly sanctuary service was to reveal in symbols, in types, in many prophecies, the death and high priestly ministry of Jesus. Sin is something too terrible to be solved merely by the death of animals, as sad and as fortunate as those deaths are. Instead, all of that spilled blood was to point to the only solution for sin, and that was the death of Jesus himself. That, that it took his death, the death of the one who was equal with God, in order to atone for sin shows just how bad sin really is. Now, is it just me, folks? Are they saying here that if Jesus would not have died, sin would have been less bad? It took this for sin to be bad. Sin was bad inherently. Whether Christ died or didn't die, sin is bad. And it's equally bad whether he died. But would God have been as good if, he, if Christ wouldn't have died? You see, they got it backwards as typical. No, sin is just as bad as it is. Whether Christ dies or doesn't die, sin is bad. And it can't get any worse than it is because it is what it is. And it's deviant from God's design. It's destructive inherently. It's, it's out of harmony with life. It destroys. But God, what would it say about God if God would have selfishly protected himself? God would not have been as good if Christ would not have died. And that's the bigger deal. Why? And the lesson is right that animal sacrifices would not suffice to deal with sin. The legal model would say it's because sin is so terrible, so offensive, it requires a payment that is more valuable than an animal, the perfect sinless blood payment of Jesus' life. That's why it's, it has to have that. That's the penal legal model. But it's, it's, it's not that true. That's not true. The answer is really quite simple. Animals don't possess a human nature. Therefore, the death of an animal could not cure the human condition, cleanse the human conscience, or renew the human nature. So, out of Hebrews, let me read to you out of Hebrews. This is chapter 9, 9 through 14. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Couldn't heal the broken mind of man, because the animal doesn't have a, a, a human mind. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here... He went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. Notice what's being cleansed. This is why it took Christ. It took a human being to develop a perfect human character. That's what Christ achieved. As we read earlier, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. I encourage you to accept the free gift. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you 
were, have always been for us, never against us. And that you and your spirit and your son have been on our side, interceding with the principalities and powers of darkness, interceding in our own defective hearts, our own selfishness, our own fears and insecurities to, to show us the truth, to woo us back to your kingdom and interceding through Christ to develop the perfect humanity, a perfect character that in our trust relationship with you, the Holy Spirit takes and reproduces in us. We ask now, as we open our heart, we see that you are absolutely trustworthy, that you will pour your love, your spirit into our hearts, write the law upon our hearts and minds and renew us to be like you. Give us the ability to go out and live and communicate your true kingdom that the world can be lighted and we can see you soon. Be with us this afternoon in our meetings this afternoon. I pray you'll give me words to speak that are clear. I pray you'll be with the hearts and minds of the people who attend, that they will be open to receive the the cleansing power of your spirit. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.